Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme... After months of talk, the trade war has finally kicked off. How far will it go? Are mini-grids the answer to getting electricity to the remotest, poorest parts of the world? The International Energy Agency, which is the sort of forecaster-in-chief of these things, predicts that between now and 2030, most of the rural electrification will be done by mini-grids, with investment rates of billions of dollars a year eventually. And the co-working space giant WeWork, is it overvalued? When you think about the value of community and collaboration and having employees that are more engaged and are happier to go to work, that's something that is much bigger than real estate. First, Donald Trump arrives in Britain on Thursday, the first visit since he became America's president. He'll be coming fresh from a NATO summit in Brussels, and after a round or two of golf in Scotland, he will then head to Helsinki to meet Vladimir Putin. During his travels, it's unlikely he'll be able to avoid the controversy he generated with his trade tariffs. Samaya Keynes is our US economics editor. Samaya, ever since it looked like Donald Trump was going to pick trade wars across the world, you've been talking about this here on Money Talks. And now it's really started. Yes. On July 6th, Donald Trump imposed tariffs on approximately $34 billion worth of Chinese imports. And the Chinese immediately responded with the same. There was this amazing moment in the days beforehand where... The Chinese said, oh, well, we, we impose our tariffs at midnight because that's what we do. And then that was awkward because actually Chinese midnight is obviously a bit before the Americans uh, would have imposed theirs. And, and they, they they thought about which one would, would look worst. And they decided that it would really be best to, to impose their tariffs after the Americans imposed theirs. Now the world is watching to see what happens next. So both sides have said that there are other things they might put tariffs on. Is that what we're going to see, a series of tit-for-tat retaliations? There are a lot of threats that have been flying around. The Americans maintain that this is not American unilateralism, that the original offence was was from the Chinese side. So they are the ones who were stealing American technology, uh, subsidising their industries, doing this industrial policy that was to America's detriment. So they will claim that their tariffs are simply in response to that. The Chinese obviously don't see it like that, so they have responded with tariffs of their own. But from the American perspective, it looks like the Chinese have escalated. They have said, well, if the Chinese hit us back, then we will hit back with more tariffs. And a few weeks ago, we had a press release from the Trump administration saying that we have another $16 billion worth of of goods that could be affected by tariffs that they're consulting on now. And then after that, they've said that they'll hit with $200 billion more tariffs and even $200 billion after that if the Chinese respond. And then Donald Trump, I think, mentioned $300 billion rather than $200 billion, which I think brings us up to more trade than there actually is going from China to America. So we'll see about that. But certainly the Americans have threatened to take this all the way. Is this really about the bilateral trade deficit between the US and China, which is what Donald Trump has really banged on about in his tweets? 
there are two factions within the Trump administration. There are those who are very concerned with the trade deficit and who essentially would see success as, as getting rid of the trade deficit. And then there are those who actually see the trade deficit as a symptom of an underlying problem, which is essentially the result of this competition, this economic competition between America and China. And the second group seems to be the one that's winning right now, because if it really was about the trade deficit, then you could imagine some kind of deal where the Chinese just agreed to buy more American stuff. But we have these tariffs. And so it looks like the people who really want structural reform in, in the Chinese economy are winning the day. And and that's that's slightly more alarming, in fact, than those who are just concerned about the trade deficit, just because it's really difficult to think about the kinds of changes that the Chinese could make that would satisfy those mega hawks. Do you see any way out of this? I'm very worried. I'd say that the chances that we avoid a very, very large trade conflict are, are very slim. However, there are some out there who think that there may be some way of tempting the American administration back towards this multilateral rules-based system. For example, the European Union shares many of the American concerns with China's behavior in terms of technology transfer, its subsidies program. And so what they would like to see would be a new set of rules that could be inserted in perhaps into the World Trade Organization uh, that would constrain China's activity and would really get to the core problem. They've been working with the Americans, with the Japanese on this trilateral initiative to try and write new rules that could constrain China. And, and I think part of that would be to demonstrate to the Trump administration that you know, working together is, is useful. The risk is, with all of these meetings coming up, that Donald Trump just makes it too awkward for these other leaders to stand next to him and say, look, we're presenting a united front. Ultimately, everyone else has to be able to sell their trade strategy, any strategy, at home to their own electorate. Donald Trump, as every day goes on, makes it harder for them to do that. Thanks, Samaya. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, what's the best way to provide electricity to the remotest, poorest parts of the world? Governments try hard to get even the remote communities onto the grid, but is that the best solution? Henry Trix is The Economist's energy and commodities editor. Henry, you travelled to India to see how some of the world's poorest people could get the sort of electricity connections that might boost economic development. Tell us what you saw. Yes, I went to uh, the state of Jharkhand in eastern India, which is one of India's poorest states. And I went to probably the poorest part of one of the poorest states. It's a it's a very tribal area. It's an area where the government doesn't really go because um, there are Maoist guerrillas operating in the area. And so they haven't had access to grid-based electricity until a couple of months ago. But a social enterprise has installed a what's called a mini grid in this area, which is a a bank of batteries powered by an array of solar panels. There are the normal kind of grid-like things. So there are poles and wires taking the electricity from, from this mini power plant to the village as a whole. What sets it apart and what makes this a really interesting sort of addition to the the whole model of development and bringing electricity to poor people is that the electricity that's provided is basically around the clock. 
it's alternating current electricity, which enables you to be able to plug in heavy machinery, run irrigation pumps. So it really helps kickstart development, which is something that hasn't really happened so much from the kind of rooftop solar uh, revolution which you see in Africa and elsewhere. So is it just a question of, as you say, the dangers in the area that mean that going onto the national grid is an issue or is this useful even in areas that are at peace? Yeah, what we found is that um, that generally governments like to extend the grid as far as they can. There's a lot of uh, um, political benefit in, a- in being able to offer universal access to electricity. And this is usually done by the politically powerful utilities at tremendous cost. They take electricity to you know, poor areas where people generally don't pay. It adds to their debts. And basically, the service is incredibly patchy and no one can rely on it. So mini grids, in a sense, arrive to fill the gap where the grid cannot go because it's just too far and not cost effective. It's actually more sensible to use mini grids as a way of providing that that universal electricity access, but without the role of utility in the middle. Is this a long-term stable solution or do you envisage this as a halfway house until a country is richer and more developed and everyone gets on the grid? Yes, I think it will take time. This is very much in its infancy. We're only talking about hundreds of mini-grid projects in India and Africa at the moment. But the International Energy Agency, which is the sort of forecaster-in-chief of these things, predicts that between now and 2030, most of the rural electrification will be done by mini-grids with investment rates of billions of dollars a year eventually. Yes, the aim, I think, is to provide electricity to those places where the grid does doesn't reach. But if the grid does reach there, then it's very important that these mini grids be compatible and be be able to plug into the grids so that you don't get, in a sense, islands of electricity. And do we have any idea what this is going to do for, say, development rates or GDP rates or employment in, in the areas where it works? There have not been a lot of studies as yet on the economic impact, but where studies have been done, and for example, in the villages that I visited in India, what they found is that about 10 to 15 percent of those people who do connect to the mini grids are seeing an increase in their business as a result. When I was there, I saw some fascinating examples like a cooperative of women who are creating cooking oil out of mustard seed, which is ground in a heavy machinery. But what's really helping stimulate this kind of economic development is the fact that the promoters of the mini grids are also bringing experts in microfinance and business development to try and explain to people how they can use electricity. And this solves a sort of a conundrum in the electricity world. It used to be considered that if you bring electricity to people, they will plug in and business will flourish as a result. It doesn't really happen like that. You have to kind of show people how electricity can work for them and then they'll pay for it. Thanks, Henry. Thanks a lot. Now, WeWork, which just rents out office spaces to companies and freelancers, is valued at more than $20 billion. When you go into a WeWork, there's an energy of people doing their own thing while actually still being part of something greater than themselves. We're as much a co-working space as Amazon is a book-selling store. 
When you think about the value of community and collaboration and having employees that are more engaged and are happier to go to work, that's something that is much bigger than real estate. We're a company that wants to provide people with an energy source. We want to provide people with motivation, with excitement. We want them to love what they do. Vijay Vaithiswaran, our US business editor, took the difficult task of heading along for some cucumber-infused water at WeWork offices to find out, does it really justify this fizzy valuation? Now, if you're anything like me, you spend more time in your office than you do at home. Is this the way that we can all have a nicer, comfier work life? Well, the company would certainly like us to think that, and it must be admitted, WeWork offices are very pleasant. They have put a lot of thought into designing them, so they tend to be quite comfortable and fashionable. When you walk into a WeWork anywhere in the world, and they have several hundred locations, you can count on coming in and being welcomed by a a concierge. For the members that work there, the concierge gets to know what you like, what your company's, company's needs are, and they arrange events on a regular basis. There's often a a coffee bar and uh, even a free-flowing local beer that uh, is served. So there's a social, buzzy atmosphere when you come into a WeWork. And of course, they have private and semi-private offices where people go off to, to take care of business. So it makes the environment much more convivial than, than most corporate offices, which have sort of soul-sucking cubicles and elitist executive suites. But none of that either tells us whether people do better work in them or whether it justifies its um, very fizzy valuation. What do you think? Those are two different questions in a way. In terms of productivity and and the happiness of workers, there is some evidence actually published in Harvard Business Review and various academic outlets by by independent researchers that suggests that co-working or these kinds of more convivial working environments do make people happier and uh, at the margin make them more productive, particularly in, in areas where you want people to collaborate. If you're innovation team, for example, if you keep them locked up in the basement of your very boring headquarters and don't let them mix and mingle with outsiders and get some new ideas, they're less likely to, to be as innovative as if, for example, um, NASDAQ, which is an American stock exchange, they've taken one of their more technology and innovation-oriented units and put them in a WeWork building a few blocks away from their own headquarters And the manager there tells me it's, for example, much easier for him to recruit top talent that might have gone to work at Google in this cool building in space where they can mix and mingle with entrepreneurs and other companies during their breaks rather than at their own headquarters just a few hundred metres away. And then, of course, the valuation question, which you rightly say is a different one. What do we think about that? That's right. There's a huge controversy in the property industry about how much the company's worth. At the moment, uh, it is val- it's a private company. It's a unicorn, as they're called. It's worth about $20 billion on notional valuation. It's about to get a new round of funding from SoftBank, from uh, the Japanese very wealthy investor that might take it up to $35 billion in valuation shortly. And many people in the property industry think that's absurd. If you were to value this as a, a property company, it's clearly overvalued. The company's rebuttal is that, in fact, that's the wrong way to look at it, that they see themselves as providing not merely raw square footage, but office as a service, space as a service. And in fact, uh, they have a new product that they're coming up with, which they call culture as a service, because they think they've figured out how to revive and rejuvenate Fortune 500 companies' cultures. They want to offer this wisdom as a, as a new kind of product, for example, that could be monetized as well. And it's not quite as crazy as it sounds. Already, they count about a quarter of the Fortune 500 as their clients. Facebook recently took an entire WeWork building for thousands of its employees. And you might say, why would a company that's already quite 
hip and and let's say uh, you know on trend is is Facebook. Why would they need WeWork? So clearly they see some role in having flexible office space, the access to some of the things that WeWork offers. So it's possible that they're onto something. Flexible sounds great in an upturn, but it doesn't sound so great in a downturn. How robust do you think they might be to the next downturn in employment? This is the great question mark. Uh, back a few years ago, they started with almost entirely freelancers, small and medium enterprises, people who really couldn't get office space in the heart of, let's say, Manhattan or London because they couldn't afford it and nobody would sell them small space or or lease them small space. And they actually aggregated a lot of these small companies and created new demand for offices. And those kinds of customers are cyclical. As soon as a recession hits, you can imagine lots of small companies going bust and giving up their month-to-month memberships. That would have left them quite vulnerable. What the company's in the midst of doing is is quite a dramatic shift to so-called enterprise customers, uh, companies with more than a thousand people. And they tend to take longer-term leases. Already one to two years, the new companies that are coming on board, like many of the the big corporates, they're taking three, four, five-year leases. So when you have a corporate client base that may soon be half of their total revenues, uh, those are companies that are unlikely just to give up or break a lease because of a a downturn of a couple of years. So that's part of the argument that says maybe uh, they might be able to survive a downturn, as well as some clever things they're doing with, for example, rent-sharing leases where they're giving landlords some of the upside during the good times and the landlords are taking some of the downside during the, any forthcoming recession. And so there are several financial approaches the company's taking. But it has to be said, it's a very open question. And if you ask most people in the property industry, they will predict that the company is going to go bust. So Vijay, when you're reporting this story, you probably visited several WeWork spaces. What do you think are the insights that we could all learn from making our working lives better, whatever office we work in? So when you visit a few of these WeWork locations around the world, a couple of things uh, come to mind that really any of us could try to do in our own office spaces. Welcome people with somebody that knows their name uh, rather than a hostile security guard who demands uh, identification. Walking into one of these buildings is is quite quick and efficient because they've automated it at the downstairs and when you walk upstairs it's uh, someone who knows your name and knows what your interests are. Have some lovely refreshments, uh, high-end coffee, they have uh, fruit-infused water with dragon fruit and pineapple. These things cost very little but they make people feel special, give them a break. Have a nice open social foyer where people can uh, talk rather than uh, again a clinical kind of office environment when you walk in. These are small things. The really bigger thing, though, is most companies are really good at taking care of their customers, but they're rather less good at taking care of their employees. And I think that's really the insight that WeWork brings to this, is that take very good care of your employees, and they're much more likely to be happy and productive. Thanks very much, Vijay. Let us know what you think about any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. 